0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Vector, where we discuss the topics, trends, and insights driving the global space ecosystem. I am your host, Kelly Kiedis-Ogborn, Vice President of Space Commerce and Entrepreneurship at Space Foundation, and I am very excited today to be joined by Matt Tompkins, who is the Vice President of the Space Portfolio at The Outpost, which is a dual-use technology accelerator and venture fund. Matt has more than authority to join me for this discussion today, and he has extensive experience working with and guiding research and development and innovation portfolios in both the private sector and within the US government. Matt is a graduate of the Air Force Academy with a BS in astronautical engineering, and he spent the last 20 years of his career in active duty as a contractor, supporting every major space mission area. Notably, in 2020, he was part of the team that co-founded the U.S. Space Force's innovation arm, which is known as SpaceWorks, where he focused on the international market, orchestrating and supporting efforts such as the International Space Pitch Day, the Allied Space Accelerator Program, and the Global Space Innovation Project. And he continues to serve now as a reservist. In his position at the Outpost, he oversees the space portfolio and helps companies overcome the dreaded valley of death, which many of you are intimately aware with, while also advancing next generation technology companies into both commercial and national security verticals. Matt, I really wanna thank you for joining me this morning.
1: Thanks, Kelly, appreciate it. And thanks also to Space Symposium 365. It's a a great way to kind of keep current as we all await for the, uh, the symposium here this spring.
0: Absolutely. It's a way to connect in the absence of connecting in person every April. Um, So, you know, today I think we have a a great and a big conversation to tackle, um, especially when you talk about the duality of innovation systems and, you know, pushing really interesting research and development forward, but also making it relevant and applicable to the markets that you're moving into And so, um, you know, what's interesting about the space community is that it's often discussed that it will look very different in 10 years, and driving that is the fact that daily new and agile companies and really aspiring entrepreneurs are joining the ranks and redefining capabilities and business strategies for how people should think about and engage space. And as you know, um, engaging in the industry is, um, is, is a... It's not a one-size-fits-all, and growing technology portfolios means different things based on different stakeholders, as well as how you progress in technology development timelines and also business goals. So to start off the conversation, I really want to set the stage, and given that you have worked in both, I'm curious if you could tell me some of the main differences you have seen in working with the U.S. government and the private sector um, in advancing research and development.
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, by the way, and you know, I've been supporting U.S. government both, like you said in my intro, as active duty and then later as a contractor. And um, you know, the one question that I keep getting asked uh, recently is like, how do we go faster? Because I think there's sometimes this falsity that that the commercial industry does, in fact, go faster. And I think they may appear to go faster, but that's as a result of usually a lot less bureaucracy and a lot easier to take risk. But I think the main difference that I've noticed um, a little bit is just the fact that commercial industry is better at closing things. Hmm. Typically, the U.S. military will like to open a project or we'll say an agency or a new division or something like this. Uh, And then if it doesn't seem to be working, uh, they'll try to re-vector it. They'll try to kind of recoup that investment in organization somehow, as opposed to sometimes in commercial industry, we're like, well, that didn't work. Move on. (laughs) Um, And it's just a lot easier for smaller companies to pivot. Now, this is also a function of the size and the resources that are involved. But isn't that something then that the Defense Department should take a look at? Um, Are they too big? Do their resources make it too difficult to pivot? You know, um, one of the biggest things that I I chuckle about and that I like to tell people when I finally um, left government service was just getting a new computer or traveling. Um, these are things that are some of the most difficult things in the day-to-day, uh, dealing with your computer, dealing with your network, and and dealing with all of that, or just booking travel and getting travel reimbursed for business. That's like the biggest no-brainer in the world <laughs> now on the other side of that fence. And that's certainly something that, um, you know, the military could certainly, uh, you know, kind of benefit from. But I'm digressing from space. I think um, as far as moving on, one of the things that I've noticed a lot is in not just in prototypes, but even later maturity stages, you know, technology readiness level. That things that have already been operationalized, the commercial industry is is just easy to learn from something, make a change, and pivot. Um, a lot of times, the military. Either doesn't have the flexibility to make a specific change without additional bureaucracy of going through contract change proposals and documentation, Um, and so I think I would say when a lot of people saying how do we go faster, I would kind of say how do you change? How do you pivot from your mistakes? Yeah, so that's uh, something that I've noticed at least initially. Oh, that's
0: a great overview, and, and I one of the themes that's coming up in my mind as you're talking about this is that concept of agility. I know in the space industry, the word of being agile and being able to pivot is, is critical to any sort of um, business strategy and plan, but obviously the way that the government views agility and the way that the private sector views agility, and, and maybe it's not even viewing agility, but the ability to be agile is probably more accurate. And what I would wonder about that is when it comes down to what the ROI is for each stakeholder, because there is merit in engaging the government to further R&D portfolios, but obviously the the capital that's coming from the government is through taxpayer dollars and other sort of stakeholders at the the end. And then in the private side, it can be a lot more closely held. And so ROI can be a lot more... um, immediately scrutinized as opposed to having a longer mission lens. So can you can you illuminate a bit on your thoughts on that in terms of how to balance the different standards of ROI when engaging both audiences and how entrepreneurs can think about creating their strategy to appeal to both?
1: Mm. Oh, excellent question. Um, you know, I think when you're dealing with stakeholders, and and I would say some stakeholders are capability driven, right? Like in the military, I want you to deliver this capability to mm-hmm. me. Other stakeholders are financially driven, and you know, just to start from 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 that perspective, um, the military does not operate, or the DoD, you know, or most of the government and itself does not operate on an equity driven, right. Uh, return on investment right all those grants you were talking about they're either non-dilutive or, um, you know, we we don't own portions of the prime development contractors. You know, something interesting, the allies do. Uh, a lot of the prime developers over in Europe are in part owned by their allied nations. And so there is an equity driven passion or bias when you're talking about, am I giving a good return on investment now, whether that's equity driven or capability driven, um, that I think it's, it's something to, to kind of point out and to note. Now, I don't think that the US government or the US um, culture is going to uh, possibly look at owning shares of a prime development contractor for defense. However, we are already seeing the Office of Strategic Capital that just came out December 1st, that's going to be doing federal loan guarantees. And that speaks to a, a debt and loan um, type of culture that may be drifting more towards an equity focused uh, environment. The other thing that you brought up was time. Um, you know the the dod definitely operates on a very constricted time scale Uh, we have these things called urgent operational needs or joint urgent operational needs these are requirements that come out from combatant commands to say i need this capability in less than six months so there are those kinds of urgent things much like the commercial industry but again the difference is whether you deliver or not how does that look and who are you Um, I guess, relaying the accomplishment of that delivery, too. Um, Sometimes uh, it can be a a lot more difficult if the people that are involved have a stake in the game, right, from a financial perspective. And in the military, it's just a lot more subjective. There is certainly a stake in the game, right? Um, uh, And that stake could be more threat-based right? Rather than economically or financially based. So I think that's kind of the difference. And, and um, you originally kept saying, how do you balance that? And, and, and that's really important, right? So if you're a commercial company, um, you typically end up having to deliver both. And that can be very difficult. You are simultaneously convincing your investors that what you delivered is of value to them and will make them money. But at the same time, you are also trying to convince your government customer that you have delivered something that is impactful. Mm -hmm. And both of those are uh, very difficult to do. And the commercial uh, industry has to do that at the same time. And so that's just an additional burden that I've noticed that we need to to deal with that um, uh, it's just a little bit different than than doing that in the military um, uh, that that I've noticed so far. I think the other thing that I would add is when you are trying to deliver to any stakeholder, it's so important to understand why they made this investment or why they made this decision to to give this and, and what their bias is. And Usually it, it, it comes down from their background. Why, why is this particular technology or, or effort important to you? Really being able to understand that is something that's very often overlooked um, when you go into a project and then maintained because that bias can change much like the threat changes or much like the, you know, economic footprint changes back with your investor.
0: Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head of where I was really driving this. And, um, I want to add a couple of other layers to this because I think it's, while, while we can you know stream, streamline it and, and summarize what we're driving at, there really are different levels because the technology and the R&D that is being furthered in both verticals, the, the government and the private sector also is at different maturity thresholds. It, it very much runs the gamut on different TRLs. And um, this concept that you talked about to the impact to the investor. So if the investor is the private sector or the investor is the government, who's actually funding and what are they going to get in return? And one of the things that I always talk about um, when it comes to investment in the space industry or how you actually progress innovative portfolios is balancing this altruism for where space is going. And in some innovation portfolios, you can boil that down to doing innovation for innovation's sake, because it's important to establish a baseline for us to be able to use in five, 10, 20 years. And then the business pragmatism and the private sector of if I invest in X, you're going to give me a return in three, five, seven years. And a lot of those um, technologies and capabilities are a lot closer held because they have more immediately lines drawn to to space as it is now and where space is going to go. And I think a lot of that boils down to a a risk appetite and how the government and the private sector ingest risk and how they also play out in risk. Because I would think that from a government aspect, um, a lot of it does play into this. It's not necessarily altruism, because again, it it depends on the level of maturity. But if you're looking at technologies and R&D that's in the TRL 134, a lot of times you are progressing to see what's technologically possible, what kind of capabilities can we bring to bear for an integration point? And so the risk of failure or or realizing that that technology is not possible yet is is broader than if you are trying to push that threshold in the private sector because it's private dollars being put into this portfolio. And so in your experience with risk and understanding how both – how both balance it, um, what would you have to add to that?
1: Yeah, you know, I was just in a meeting last week where this came up, um, and I won't say who, of course, but, uh, you know, it was a, a, a flag officer um, in the Air Force, and uh, he said, I ah, just, you know, I, I don't know about mm-hmm. this, this tech, even though we, we described it." And I, quite frankly, said, well, then this is your chance, right, mm-hmm. to apply use cases and scenarios and put that, risky feeling to the test right so we've explained the technology you think it's interesting but you're just not sure how it would perform in a certain use case boy does that not sound like a great project I know so that is why we have these innovation projects and you know I don't think innovation is going to ever replace traditional acquisition nor is it trying to I think it's just uh, there to Mm complement supplement and augment I love those those three words because they're very they're very uh, non-threatening <laughs> words. And we've seen uh, innovation funding go up, you know, despite uh, Congress, um, you know, whether or not to, to, to fund just a couple months ago, which was interesting, it ended up, um, we've, we've seen it over the past few years go up. So I think to your point of how do you balance that risk is, well, take a look at traditional acquisition and take a look at the innovation and monetarily, quantify that risk that you're taking, right? right? Um, And really kind of understand um, what you can do um, because I feel like a lot of people, both users and customers in the DoD, don't realize how much in the driver's seat they really are in all of this. And so if you have, you could have a TRL, uh, four technology that, you know, hey, we're thinking about building a prototype and what do we think about that? Um, you could have a TRL nine technology that's simply not used mm-hmm. in the military that, that, that lowers it. And then all of a sudden you're kind of in the same boat. So you, there's ways to balance that risk and say, if I want to get from a five to six, you know, TRL, and I want to do this type of project, um, you have options, right? And so I think what the military can do, is to provide what I said earlier, provide use cases and provide scenarios, listen to the pitch. And then that's your chance to then be constructive and offer something too far. There are many demos that I've gone where a company will come out and demo and the military will be like, well, thanks for coming out. (laughs) So I think um, that's really the biggest thing that the military can do uh, is to provide, um, well, here's how I was envisioning that when you mm-hmm. describe that, because maybe there's a miscommunication. And then again, as we talked about earlier, that's where you can understand that person's bias and their passion, and then really play to that and say, let's, let's make a, a, a project that you will be invested in. And we know that's not equity-based, but uh, it's, the, it's the same kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of just transparency, that the military can provide. Now I know and have worked in it for many years at varying levels of classification. And so it's not always easy to do, but if we can um, provide a little bit more advanced um, planning and understanding of here are the things that, where we wanna go and here are the roadmaps. And um, I think the second thing that the military needs to do is to stick to that plan and to stick to that roadmap and commit to it. Now we did talk about pivoting earlier. So there's lots of things uh, that can go wrong and I understand that. So it's very, very critical, but um, uh, the military is changing sometimes too rapidly for the commercial industry to kind of catch up and understand how to navigate it.
0: Yeah, the the transparency piece is really critical. And I think that the, the onus doesn't necessarily if we're just talking about the US government doesn't necessarily just fall on the US government because there really is a, an art to the communication of how you talk about a technology and give somebody confidence that you've thought through the risk portfolio and you've thought through the the A-B testing. One of the things when I um, used to do tech commercialization and I would work with companies when they would apply for government grants, whether it be SBIRs or BAAs BAs or broader, um, is I would always have them quote unquote, show your work in a way. And I know it sounds really basic, but what are you proposing to get funded? What is the outcome of that funding? If you are not able to meet your technological objective, what's your plan B, what's your plan C? So at least it's completely transparent across the board, what you're trying to establish from a baseline of possibility and how the government can track it to understand, yes, no, did you meet your objective? How do you pivot? Because sometimes I think um, innovation in and of itself is a buzzword. And sometimes technologies can very much be uh, talked about in, in buzzwordy terms. And I think you need to be as clear as possible about what what are the bounds that you're trying to push and what can you expect as an outcome. So that transparency needs to be on both sides.
1: For sure. You know, um, one of the biggest uh, buzzwords that it's used a lot and, and, and used here in the introduction is, is is Valley of Death something that I'm not quite sure everyone really knows how to define the Valley of Death. So how do you know if you've approached it? I'll actually be giving a talk in a couple of weeks on, yeah. on that, and we'll, we'll 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 give it a shot uh, or we'll at least kind of unmask it a little bit. Um, and and you know uh, buzzwords can be fun. Um, buzzwords can be helpful. Uh, you know I think. Uh, in, in all of this and where is all of this innovation going? We've got a new spark cell you know, uh, popping up almost monthly, it seems, which is just fantastic. And I think what it shows is that we're trying to make things, uh, and I use the personal pronoun we because I view myself as a part of this larger ecosystem. Um, we trying to make it fun. We're trying to make it inviting. And so it's really inspiring. To see uh, new things with you know the the word works after it you know with an X or whatever um, popping up all the time and and and, and NATO is now doing um, an innovation fund and a defense uh, dual use accelerator so it's really exciting to see that because people find it inviting people find it welcoming and if you can create an atmosphere and an ecosystem that is fun and inviting organically it will grow and and I think that's part of it and so a lot of times what I tell people is. You know, when, when we talk about dual use, which is another buzzword, um, and uh, you know, I think if we can if we can realize that we're all kind of in the same boat and that a rising tide lifts us, <laughs> lifts us all, then um, we'll, we'll start to realize that um, people, yes, may have different bias. People may have a conflict of interest, but overall, usually everybody that you talk to is out there trying to help and do their part they're trying to complement they're trying to augment they're trying to supplement and if you can realize that and harness that you'll probably find a way to benefit from it
0: absolutely and i and i do want to capitalize on the progression of this conversation moving into dual use but we do have a question from linkedin that i want to posture to you uh so somebody asked if industry should be looking at developing their own mission resilience and protection solutions what are your thoughts on that oh.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to protect your investment. You know, something um, interesting that a colleague brought up to me a couple months ago, um, communication satellites are mm-hmm. considered extremely high value. One, because they're used all day, every day. And two, because um, they're extremely expensive to put out there in geo orbit, right? Um, but they're considered high value assets by both the DoD and commercial. You know, on the commercial side, they're sold. and And every time they're sold, um, there's usually a station keeping thing or some sort of change that expends that fuel, and that is a huge reduction in your investment because you have reduced the end of life date, so to speak, yeah. of that thing, right? And so hopefully we'll see you know space refueling uh, in the future, and that's what Orbital Prime and and other efforts um, uh, across the world are are, are trying to effort, are trying to do. Excuse me, but I think um, absolutely you should. Be looking at commercial resilience, and th- there is a budding insurance game in in space. And um, everything that we do in our lives, if you stop and think about it, in some way involves uh, some sort of space capability, and it is becoming a, a fabric of what we deliver. So, if we think about, are there threats to that? A lot of times well. um, Threat may not necessarily be a traditional actor in a nation state of what you think of it, Uh, but there will always be some sort of vulnerability that may be exploited or simply may just go wrong. So absolutely. I would say that if there are protection solutions there uh, that you think you can offer, there will probably be a customer for such if there is a potential loss of investment or or capability. Yeah,
0: that's a great question. I completely agree with you. And it's it really helps illuminate this intertwined connection that the government and the private sector does have. Because what I've seen, at least in innovation, this moves very well into our dual use um, second part of this, is policy and regulation oftentimes runs like five to seven years behind capabilities. So I think that innovation really needs, and R&D really needs to prove what's possible from a capability stance. and, And industry and private sector really help drive that in order for the government to understand how to adopt it, how to use it, how to regulate it. And so this whole concept, as you mentioned, of resiliency in space, I've seen it as be a pervasive theme that's come up a lot, um, whether it's in space traffic management, or as you said, you know, refueling depots or um, satel- satellite structures and how you're actually gonna um, Going to manufacture them and, and deorbit them, right, or reuse them in space? Um, I think that it's important to understand what the baseline of possibility is on the industry side in terms of capability, so that the government can figure out a framework around it.
1: What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, um, in that in that same uh, thread, so I'll say ISAM, but in-, in space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing or maintenance. Um, you know, in that case, um, the White House was incredibly helpful in drafting new policy and saying this is what we think um we want to encourage yeah here's how that worked the military took that policy and said we're going to build some initial programs to See what's out there. And, and they released an Orbital Prime STTR phase one and did a whole, uh, gosh, over 112, 120, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that is going to move on to a phase two here, I believe in March. Um, and then eventually on to F Ventures uh, looking at supplying TACFI and StratFI financing in the future. At the same time, NASA is also using that policy to do their own on-orbit servicing assembly and maintenance programs and stuff like that. So we're seeing policy drive government activity. What that government activity is going to turn into is potentially palming and, uh, sorry, um, programming for dollars Uh, And then what that's going to do is send a demand signal. The government is going to create a demand signal for then industry to start doing their own IRED or independent research and development dollars to then start building up that that, um, national industrial base. Uh, It's working we're 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 really seeing this now, and I think it's important to start demonstrating that capability. Um, my 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 two cents on that is that uh, we now need to move into the allied portion of that and, and grow all that um, because I, I think that's incredibly important and we won't be able to really realize all of that without our allies. but um, uh, that's a, a next logical step, and I know that they're already considering it. So I would say policy has uh, an opportunity to to drive things. Right, saw a perfect example that the White House really coming out with a a fantastic policy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's on both sides. Sometimes innovation—what I meant by my earlier comment—it sometimes surprises us to realize, oh, we're we're technologically able to do X. We need to figure out how to adopt it. But then a lot in space, um, and I, I talk a lot about this with the Artemis mission. So the fact that NASA has reoriented. For what Artemis wants to bring to bear, and you know, with the um, with the successful first launch and the and the recovery of the capsule, it's almost guiding as a north star to a lot of industry about where policy and and space collectively wants to go to figure out how to create these strategies for scalability. Um, but a lot of it also comes down to then how you communicate the technology so people understand it. And this was a comment that somebody made in LinkedIn about transparency. And I think it plays really well into this dual use because one of the things that I find interesting, we talked about government as a stakeholder, private sector as a stakeholder, and how they deem and term ROI is um, commercialization and the ability for a technology to fly means different things to different people. So when I used to work with innovators, I would say that really, if you're moving from a government atmosphere of having the government as an integrator, the government as a use case, and wanting to move purely into this private private entity, and it's interesting that you talked about the valley of death of people not understanding it. They might not understand it, but I know they inherently feel it. <laughs> because <laughs> these, for these companies, they're like, my technology works, the government funded it, I, I fielded it, I integrated it, why doesn't the market want it? And what i would sometimes tell them is that there's two proofs of concept it's if the technology works and if the commercial market wants it and the commercial market wanting it when you're moving purely into a um a private sector it gets stickier because you're dealing with humans and business cycles and investment and emotions and all of these things that are not necessarily quantifiable and so there is an art to messaging what the technology means and how it impacts the customer so that it does have legs to get over that valley of death to actually integrate into um, new or intended markets.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, um, when Afworks, uh really started to come into the light, it was very clear that we started using this thing needs to be um, have dual use applicability. So it has to have both commercial and defense application. Okay, why did we do that? Um, uh, you know, I think Uh, It's become clear that part of it was to make sure that um, the DOD is encouraging uh, overall economic health of these companies, Mm -hmm. right? So if you are breeding companies that have defense-only applications, uh, it's not necessarily all that healthy, or it's not as healthy as it could be for the U.S. economy, which ultimately is the charter of the Small Business Administration, where all of that comes from okay so economic health is one reason the other thing is just to kind of hedge your business right um in general if you only have one type of customer it's not a really healthy business um, to begin with so you know on the business side we're trying to make sure that people have an understanding of is this commercially viable because we don't you know the dod shouldn't be the only person um looking at your product because if for whatever reason um funding can't do it this year, or this quarter, or whatever, we don't want to be the cause of having a business go under. I think the other thing is timelines. You know, the the government tends to be a little bit, you know, slow to start, but then can ramp up very quickly. Whereas the commercial industry may be able to give you an initial investment, um, and then we'll kind of wait and see how you do. Right. So I think because of that, it's almost like. Uh, investing in personal finances, right? You have your stocks and then you have your bonds, right? And so you want to have a, a really balanced portfolio. And I think that's what companies need to um, really realize. And that also that is a um, a factor in getting selected for an AppWorks innovation or a Spaceworks innovation thing. They there are entire huge sections on how is the commercial is this commercialization of this technology uh, going to go? Where do you see it coming to market? Tell me about all that. Uh, Show me that there's a beachhead uh, there and you are rated against that. Um, And I think, uh, you know, it's important for people to realize that uh, that's a huge differentiator. Uh, So technologies that may already have a commercial uh, market and that we're simply looking to repurpose them for defense, those can look very, very attractive. Um, And so if you can show proficiency in both, um, that's great. The reverse is also true. Right. If you have a company and you're saying, look at all these government contracts that I have, Uh, it's a really good, stable business that looks like a stable investment. And I'm trying to do something on the commercial side. You know, um, family investors or high net worth individuals should should notably take that as a fantastic sign that that investment has been de-risked. So you can use it to your advantage going either way if you have both.
0: That's a fantastic point. there is, um, as you know, there is a strategy to being able to show credibility in both markets to leverage investment and interest in the other. Um, that's why when a lot of young entrepreneurs or, or companies will talk about wanting to work purely in the commercial sector when it comes to space, I always remind them that there is a touch point with the government. If you're not going after a government you know, grants to be able to develop your technology, they will still be your regulator, they will be a customer, they will be a validator, they will be an integrator. There, there are all these other ways that you're going to have to work within that that ecosystem and that sort of stakeholder environment. Um, so you have to prepare and plan for both. I, I do want to broaden this conversation slightly, um, because you've dropped the word allied into the conversation a few times. Um, and it As you know, innovation is not just this duality between the private sector and the U.S. government. It is global. And especially when it comes to space, um, you have a lot of innovation and R&D portfolios that are not geographically bound. And the future of space really needs to be this intrinsic, collaborative and competitive environment in order to really achieve our collective wish for where we're going. And so I know that... um, you were really involved in the development of innovation ecosystems and funds globally, and particularly with our allied nations and with NATO. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that and what is really happening? What's the pulse? How can companies think about it and take part of it?
1: Great, Um, it's my favorite topic. Um, So (laughs) yeah, where to start? I think um, initially I started looking into this and saying, You know, I was working international affairs for Space Systems Command just as a contractor, but supporting that. I started to notice that the technology that we used when working in a coalition environment was already fielded for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, It was already something that was either commercial off the shelf or something that had been fielded and operational for a while. Now, um, we were looking at making subtle improvements uh, to those things, but usually the baseline technology was there. So I started asking questions. Um, Show me a technology where country A, B, and C all put money in and then I'll get to use it on orbit. Um, I got a few examples, but that's where it stopped. It was just a few examples. It wasn't, um, you know, uh, we would say uh, in that office by design, right, as part of a process. And so I think um, it really became prevalent when you started looking at the trail of of dollars, right? So um, can, uh, just as an open-ended question, can U.S. defense dollars that are earmarked for the defense of our nation that come from our taxpayers be sent overseas and spent on another company in another country that will go to their economy? It gets tricky. There's really not a whole lot of flexible legislation or programs that allow us to do that. There are programs, there is legislation, but those programs are usually just one or two. Um, And the legislation is, quite frankly, outdated. Um, I'm talking about 20 plus years old. Mm -hmm. So, so much has changed in the financial world. So much has changed in the R&D world um, that requires that update. Um, there have been things. Uh, the Army had uh, a venture fund called On Point, which recently closed. Um, and then, just more recently, the DoD uh, put in something called the Trusted Capital Marketplace, which is, you know, about to now move into uh, something separately with uh, Officer Strategic Capital. So there are programs. We are learning. We are adjusting. But by and large, I've noticed that for TRL two through six. Mm -hmm. there's a serious lack of collaborative R&D funding from the U.S. Now, a good example of that is this NATO Innovation Fund. Now, it's a brand new fund. We don't know exactly how it's going to be used or executed, um, but we are a part of NATO. Um, To my knowledge, I don't believe the U.S. is going to participate. Now, maybe that could be that we're waiting, and I hope the answer is that we're going to participate soon, or maybe it's because we don't have flexible congressional legislation, or maybe it's just because um, this should be a variety of factors. But I think these are important questions for us to ask and and look at, you know, something interesting um, also at NATO is the DIANA program, the Defense Innovation Accelerator Mm -hmm. for the North Atlantic. I think I got that right, Mm -hmm. Um, but Diana will be only giving out $50,000 grants $150,000 grants. You'll never be able to do a prototype on that. So I think it's important to know how NATO intends to bridge that gap from maybe doing a study to providing something of higher TRL. So even our allies are also kind of, you know, coming into the fold, but we can do a lot more. It should be painfully obvious um, that, uh, you know, by now in the Ukrainian effort, when uh, I think Putin thought he was going to be there for a couple months, has dried out quite longer. And I think that is a testament to allied cooperation and collaboration. And was technology involved? If you look it up, I would say technology helped turn the tide of the war with what we're doing with advanced communication um, and uh, some of the drone efforts that are happening in Ukraine. So I'm really excited to see um, a lot of those inch stones um, moving forward. But I think what's needed now is for us to ask, um, what is it that is needed and what can we do? And I think it starts with financial legislation in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting concept, um, especially you know going on this point that I made earlier that space needs to be collaborative while competitive. And I'm curious, what have you seen be at least some of the initial themes, innovative themes that the funding would go toward because from a the, the point that you made earlier about investment from different um, countries going into this fund that might not directly economically benefit them, um, it, I don't want to say it throws a wrench into it, but it does complicate <laughs> things slightly in terms of that that ROI cost. Um, and what's interesting about also this shift about where space is going is, you know, during the the Apollo era, like I like to say, is that. Uh, Engagement in space was very much uh, a national security, national posturing endeavor. And so you had countries that wanted to prove capabilities and then everything was sort of vertically aligned and technological progression or exploration was sort of this second order impact. Not that it wasn't important, but it, it came after. Now it's very much on the forefront, right? Like what can we push the boundaries of technological progression When we uh, retire the ISS and now we, you know, move over R&D collaboratively to these commercial space stations, what does that look like? So um, there's a lot of opportunity, as you said, to kind of redraw the landscape of what that cooperation looks like. And I'm just curious what innovative themes are on the forefront of that to give a proving ground for broader, broader legislation or for broader collaboration.
1: Sure, great question. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer that with some sort of like focus areas or, or space mm-hmm. missions. So um, I think initially people are looking at collaborating with allies in two main areas: one, meeting satcom, uh, which should be obvious on you know uh, making sure you're coordinated. And the other, just in general, remote sensing. And I'll give you an example. So um, within. Uh, the the Defense Department, we have the commercial integration cell, the Joint Space Operations Center. So within the commercial integration cell, there are already a few commercial companies, um, but they are either remote sensing or SATCOM. So it should be very clear that initially that's how we are coordinating internally. Um, Allies are a part of that. But I'd like to see some allied companies uh, be that. And we are starting to see uh, that coming in. Um, I don't know the the latest of the number of companies, but um, I do know that uh, hopefully that's on the horizon. Um, The second thing is look at small launch. You know, you talked about Apollo and everything like that. Look at how small launch has totally changed or even, you know, heavy launch with the S4 ring, which there was just a launch, I believe, on Monday, um, you know, and and seeing uh, people just... In general, the the cost of getting to space and space lift is drastically reduced. But from an Allied perspective, it's happening all over the world, right? Norway is looking at uh, Tromso. we've got things going up uh, in the UK and Scotland, Uh, Canada is looking into it um, and and even parts of Eastern Africa. Uh, But, you know, still heavy launch. Uh, It really, from an Allied perspective, only happens in four places, right? The US, Ariane has it down in French Guiana, Uh, India and Japan. So from an allied perspective, that's all the heavy launch. So um, I would like to see additional cooperations uh, in heavy launch and in small launch because uh, that could be a really easy way to um, unburden or share resources, uh, at least initially. Um, Beyond remote sensing and uh, SATCOM while you're on orbit, I do have to plug the in-space servicing assembly and maintenance. Mm for two reasons. One, because I think there's a clear commercial use case. So we're already seeing a lot of commercial companies like Microgravity as a service reach out to, um, you know, pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So there's a clear commercial uh, line of business there. But then also think about the long term, really kind of uh, blue sky things that people want to do in space. I'm talking cislunar, uh, human tourism, space flights, and even asteroid mining, which was tried and we'll try again. But In-space servicing assembly and maintenance, if you can really exist out in orbit, that will provide the enabling technologies that help all those previous things I just mentioned. So um, I think that there's a lot that we can do. And I think that, I think I said this uh, when I first met you, nobody does anything really amazing on their own. (laughs) I truly believe that. Um, And if we want to do amazing things, we're going to have to share and and get help with that. And uh, I'm really excited to see that.
0: I agree. I, the environment, um, you know, even though space is so large, I think anybody that's in the space environment always jokes about how small and incestuous it feels because we all be <laughs> crossing paths and and collaborating on different things because it really is a, um, it takes a village, right, in a lot of ways. And I do agree with your, your topical focus because um, the way that I think about enabling the opportunities, especially in low earth orbit, is you have to you have to make getting there ubiquitous. And you mentioned that with small launch, right? It has to be cheap, reliable, as easy as getting on an airplane, turnaround time one to three days as opposed to one to three months, Um, but also taking Earth out of the equation. And that's what you were talking about with the ISAM portfolio, because when you don't have to rely on Earth as a sustainer for any sort of activity, it really opens the aperture for what you can do. And like you said, launching into other orbits and other opportunities like cislunar and beyond, is, is really critical. Uh, in our last few minutes, because we, we could continue on probably for another hour. Um, but in our last few minutes, we talked a lot about you know innovation happening around the world in the government and the private sector, with our allied nations. If there was a company that was looking to further along their R&;D portfolio um, or, or pivot from an existing one, what kind of advice would you give them you know resources to look at? where should they start? Um, everyone's roadmap is different, but I think it's important for people to know what's out there for them to take advantage of.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question, and I love the uh, yeah space is uh, potentially uh, small <laughs> which seems like a joke, but you know what uh, when when i when I go to space symposium here in a couple months um, it's, it's like a high school reunion sometimes. Yes. You, you can't walk like, you know, five people, uh, uh, five feet. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun time. So I gotta be careful what I, what I say here. Hey, didn't I hear you say something when you were talking to Kelly? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so my, my last bit of advice for companies, and you know, I do a, a small company advisement for space companies right now. Um, I would say, um, look at all the varieties of funding out there for you. I think a lot of times people just, they say it's too hard to break in traditional acquisition because I have to deal with the primes and there's just loads of people, you know, looking at, at BAAs. It's really hard. Um, There are a ton of broad agency announcements out there in traditional contracting, and trolling SAM.gov is not easy. There are a lot of resources to be able to do that. The next is innovation and going and doing the SBAR route, and hopefully that works, and then going on to TagFi and StratFi, which continually changes. We're only in the third year of TagFi and StratFi, and every time I apply, it looks totally different than the previous year. Um, but then you have Defense Production Act money, you have congressional plus-up money. All of these are still within the, the larger government and DOD space, but they're different pots of money. And so I would encourage companies to to really kind of take a look and say, you know, where does the money come from? And then what's the best vehicle for me to attach uh, to that? And, and there are a variety of options and to really kind of plan out. Um, the second thing I would say is you've got to be... Uh, really capability focused. It's not about putting as many irons in the fire as you can. It's about, I want to be the company that does this the best. And this is what I'm focusing on for this fiscal year. Okay, and so all those contracting and all those efforts and all my network of contacts that I'm going to look at has to in some way focus on this capability or these two capabilities. I think a lot of times people like, Uh, especially small companies like, well, I could do that. I could repurpose my technology to do that. And I would encourage everyone to just really remain focused and to put a plan in place, at least for a fiscal year and saying, this is what I'm going to do. And all of my activities have to in some way go toward advancing this capability. uh, And I'm going to beat out the competition. Uh, And then, yeah, hopefully something will come through and then you can pivot because you're a commercial company and you can pivot.
0: (laughs) The art of the pivot. I think that's great advice, particularly because, um, I think a lot of times there can be analysis paralysis because there's too many options. And what's hard for people when they're very tightly coordinated on a a goal and and a tech progression timeline, um, moving in one direction inherently means moving away from another and that can be very scary for folks. So I like your advice on focusing on one capability and really understanding the best options to drive that home because it'll allow you to be more focused, but also know if you're um, moving forward with intention or if you need to pivot, into into a different possibility
1: there see you said it better
0: (laughs) well i've been living in that commercialization space for so long it's like you know all the all the themes start coming back um but yeah matt no thank you so much for your time today i i really appreciate you sharing your your expertise and you know your um your advice to to the folks listening because it's, it's really important and especially you know, moving into this new year, we're seeing investment across innovation portfolios, especially in space growing. And I know we're getting a lot more interest from entrepreneurial companies or companies in other industries that want to come join us. So it's a, it's a really critical topic to help illuminate some sort of pathway.
1: Yeah, well, it's just been fantastic to be a, a part of that ecosystem in general and you know when i come out to the space symposium and walk around and see friends and people that i used to work with um that's just uh, that's just a fantastic feeling to know that you're just kind of helping and being a part of of that in general yeah. uh, it's it's really great and thank you kelly appreciate it um this has been this has been fun i appreciate it all the time
0: absolutely so if anyone needs to get a hold of you they can find you at the outpost i know that we um LinkedIn and Twitter. And, um, for all of our viewers, we do put out vector conversations once a month. So make sure to follow space foundation on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you won't miss the next episode. Thanks for joining us. And Matt, thank you for your time. Bye. Take care. Bye.